Section number one of chapter nineteen of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill McGovern. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 19, Section 1. While England was agitated, first by the dread of an invasion, and then by joy at the deliverance wrought for her by the valor of her seamen, important events were taking place on the continent. On the 6th of March the king had arrived at The Hague, and had proceeded to make his arrangements for the approaching campaign. The prospect which lay before him was gloomy. The coalition of which he was the author and the chief had, during some months, been in constant danger of dissolution. By what strenuous exertions, by what ingenious expedients, by what blandishments, by what bribes, he succeeded in preventing his allies from throwing themselves one by one at the feet of France, can be but imperfectly known. The fullest and most authentic record of the labors and sacrifices by which he kept together during eight years a crowd of faint-hearted and treacherous potentates, negligent of the common interest and jealous of each other, is to be found in his correspondence with Hensius. In that correspondence William is all himself. He had, in the course of his eventful life, to sustain some high parts for which he was not eminently qualified and in those parts his success was imperfect. As sovereign of England he showed abilities and virtues which entitle him to honorable mention in history. But his deficiencies were great. He was to the last a stranger amongst us, cold, reserved, never in good spirits, never at his ease. His kingdom was a place of exile. His finest palaces were prisons, he was always counting the days which must elapse before he should again see the land of his birth, the clipped trees, the wings of the innumerable windmills, the nests of the storks on the tall gables, and the long lines of painted villas reflected in the sleeping canals. He took no pains to hide the preference which he felt for his native soil and for his early friends and therefore, though he rendered great services to our country, he did not reign in our hearts. As a general in the field, again, he showed rare courage and capacity, but, from whatever cause, he was, as a tactician, inferior to some of his contemporaries, who, in general powers of mind, were far inferior to him. The business for which he was preeminently fitted was diplomacy, in the highest sense of the word. It may be doubted whether he has ever had a superior in the art of conducting those great negotiations on which the welfare of the commonwealth of nations depends. His skill in this department of politics was never more severely tasked or more signally proved than during the latter part of 1691 and the earlier part of 1692. One of his chief difficulties was caused by the sullen and menacing demeanor of the northern powers. Denmark and Sweden had at one time seemed disposed to join the coalition, but they had early become cold and were fast becoming hostile. From France they flattered themselves that they had little to fear. It was not very probable that her armies would cross the Elbe 
or that her fleets would force a passage through the sound. But the naval strength of England and Holland, united, might well excite apprehension at Stockholm and Copenhagen. Soon arose vexatious questions of maritime right, questions such as, in almost every extensive war of modern times, have arisen between belligerents and neutrals. The Scandinavian princes complained that the legitimate trade between the Baltic and France was tyrannically interrupted. Though they had not in general been on very friendly terms with each other, they began to draw close together, intrigued at every petty court, and tried to form what William called a third party in Europe. The King of Sweden, who, as Duke of Pomerania, was bound to send three thousand men for the defense of the empire, sent instead of them his advice that the allies would make peace on the best terms which they could get. The king of Denmark seized a great number of Dutch merchant ships and collected in Holstein an army which caused no small uneasiness to his neighbors. I fear, William wrote in an hour of deep dejection to Hensius, I fear that the objects of this third party is a peace which will bring in its train the slavery of Europe. The day will come when Sweden and her confederates will know too late how great an error they have committed. They are farther, no doubt, than we from the danger, and therefore it is that they are thus bent on working our ruin and their own. That France will now consent to reasonable terms is not to be expected, and it were better to fall sword in hand than to submit to whatever she may dictate. While the king was thus disquieted by the conduct of the northern powers, ominous signs began to appear in a very different quarter. It had from the first been no easy matter to induce sovereigns who hated and who in their own dominions persecuted the Protestant religion to countenance the revolution which had saved that religion from a great peril. But happily the example and the authority of the Vatican had overcome their scruples. Innocent the Eleventh and Alexander the Eighth had regarded William with ill-concealed partiality. He was not indeed their friend, but he was their enemy's enemy, and James had been, and if restored, must again be their enemy's vassal. To the heretic nephew, therefore, they gave their effective support, to the orthodox uncle only compliments and benedictions. But Alexander the Eighth had occupied the papal throne little more than fifteen months. His successor, Antonio Pignatelli, who took the name of Innocent the Twelfth, was impatient to be reconciled to Louis. Louis was now sensible that he had committed a great error when he had roused against himself at once the spirit of Protestantism and the spirit of popery. He permitted the French bishops to submit themselves to the Holy See. The dispute, which had at one time seemed likely to end in a great Gallican schism, was accommodated, and there was reason to believe that the influence of the head of the church would be exerted for the purpose of severing the ties which bound so many Catholic princes to the Calvinist who had usurped the British throne. Meanwhile, the coalition which the third party on one side and the Pope on the other were trying to dissolve was in no small danger of falling to pieces from mere rottenness. Two of the allied powers, and two only, were hearty in the common cause. England, 
drawing after her the other British kingdoms, and Holland, drawing after her the other Batavian commonwealths. England and Holland were indeed torn by internal factions, and were separated from each other by mutual jealousies and antipathies. But both were fully resolved not to submit to French domination, and both were ready to bear their share, and more than their share, of the charges of the contest. Most of the members of the Confederacy were not nations, but men, an emperor, a king, electors, dukes. And of these men there was scarcely one whose whole soul was in the struggle, scarcely one who did not hang back, who did not find some excuse for omitting to fulfill his engagements, who did not expect to be hired to defend his own rights and interests against the common enemy. But the war was the war of the people of England and of the people of Holland. Had it not been so, the burdens which it made necessary would not have been borne by either England or Holland during a single year. When William said that he would rather die sword in hand than humble himself before France, he expressed what was felt not by himself alone, but by two great communities of which he was the first magistrate. With those two communities, unhappily, other states had little sympathy. Indeed, those two communities were regarded by other states as rich, plain-dealing, generous dupes are regarded by needy sharpers. England and Holland were wealthy, and they were zealous. Their wealth excited the cupidity of the whole alliance, and to that wealth their zeal was the key. They were persecuted with sordid importunity by all their confederates, from Caesar, who, in the pride of his solitary dignity, would not honor King William with the title of majesty, down to the smallest margrave, who could see his whole principality from the cracked windows of the mean and ruinous old house which he called his palace. It was not enough that England and Holland furnished much more than their contingents to the war by land, and bore unassisted the whole charge of the war by sea. They were beset by a crowd of illustrious mendicants, some rude, some obsequious, but all indefatigable and insatiable. One prince came mumping to them annually with a lamentable story about his distresses. A more sturdy beggar threatened to join the third party and to make a separate peace with France if his demands were not granted. Every sovereign, too, had his ministers and favorites, and these ministers and favorites were perpetually hinting that France was willing to pay them for detaching their masters from the coalition, and that it would be prudent in England and Holland to outbid France. Yet the embarrassment caused by the rapacity of the allied courts was scarcely greater than the embarrassment caused by their ambition and their pride. This prince had set his heart on some childish distinction, a title, or a cross, and would do nothing for the common cause till his wishes were accomplished. That prince chose to fancy that he had been slighted, and would not stir till reparation had been made to him. The Duke of Brunswick-Lunenburg would not furnish a battalion for the defense of Germany unless he was made an elector. The elector of Brandenburg declared that he was as hostile as he had ever been to France, but he had been ill-used by the Spanish government, and he therefore would not suffer his soldiers to be employed in the defense of the Spanish Netherlands. He was willing to bear his share of the war, but it must be in his own way. He must have the command of a distinct army, 
and he must be stationed between the Rhine and the Meuse. The elector of Saxony complained that bad winter quarters had been assigned to his troops. He therefore recalled them just when they should have been preparing to take the field, but very coolly offered to send them back if England and Holland would give him four hundred thousand rix dollars. It might have been expected that at least the two chiefs of the House of Austria would have put forth at this conjuncture all their strength against the rival House of Bourbon. Unfortunately, they could not be induced to exert themselves vigorously, even for their own preservation. They were deeply interested in keeping the French out of Italy, yet they could with difficulty be prevailed upon to lend the smallest assistance to the Duke of Savoy. They seemed to think of the business of England and Holland to defend the passes of the Alps, and to prevent the armies of Louis from overflowing Lombardy. To the emperor, indeed, the war against France was a secondary object. His first object was the war against Turkey. He was dull and bigoted. His mind misgave him that war against France was, in some sense, a war against the Catholic religion, and the war against Turkey was a crusade. His recent campaign on the Danube had been successful. He might easily have concluded an honorable peace with the Porte, and have turned his arms westward, but he had conceived the hope that he might extend his hereditary dominions at the expense of the infidels. Visions of a triumphant entry into Constantinople, and of a Te Deum in St. Sophia's, had risen in his brain. He not only employed in the east a force more than sufficient to have defended Piedmont and reconquered Lorraine, but he seemed to think that England and Holland were bound to reward him largely for neglecting their interests and pursuing his own. Spain already was what she continued to be down to our own time. Of the Spain which had domineered over the land and the ocean, over the old and the new world, of the Spain which had in the short space of twelve years led captive a pope and a king of France, a sovereign of Mexico and a sovereign of Peru, of the Spain which had sent an army to the walls of Paris and had equipped a mighty fleet to invade England, nothing remained but an arrogance which had once excited terror and hatred, but which now could excite only derision. In extent, indeed, the dominions of the Catholic king exceeded those of Rome when Rome was at the zenith of power. But the huge mass lay torpid and helpless, and could be insulted or despoiled with impunity. The whole administration, military and naval, financial and colonial, was utterly disorganized. Charles was a fit representative of his kingdom, impotent physically, intellectually, and morally, sunk in ignorance, listlessness, and superstition, yet swollen with the notion of his own dignity, and quick to imagine and resent affronts. So wretched has his education been that when he was told of the fall of Mons, the most important fortress in his vast empire, he asked whether Mons was in England. Among the ministers who were raised up and pulled down by his sickly caprice was none capable of applying a remedy to the distempers of the state. In truth, to brace anew the nerves of that paralyzed body would have occupied a hard task even for Ximenes. No servant of the Spanish crown occupied a more important post, and none was more unfit for an important post than the Marquis of Castanaga. 
He was governor of the Netherlands, and in the Netherlands it seemed probable that the fate of Christendom would be decided. He had discharged his trust, as every public trust was then discharged, in every part of that vast monarchy, on which it was boastfully said, the sun never set. Fertile and rich, as was the country which he ruled, he threw on England and Holland the whole charge of defending it. He expected that arms, ammunitions, wagons, provisions, everything, would be furnished by the heretics. It had never occurred to him that it was his business, and not theirs, to put Mons in a condition to stand a siege. The public voice loudly accused him of having sold that celebrated stronghold to France. But it is probable that he was guilty of nothing worse than the haughty apathy and sluggishness characteristic of his nation. Such was the state of the coalition of which William was the head. There were moments when he felt himself overwhelmed, when his spirits sank, when his patience was wearied out, and when his constitutional irritability broke forth. I cannot, he wrote, offer a suggestion without being met by a demand for a subsidy. I have refused point-blank, he wrote on another occasion, when he had been importuned for money. It is impossible that the States-General and England can bear the charge of the army on the Rhine, of the army in Piedmont, and of the whole defense of Flanders, to say nothing of the immense cost of the naval war. If our allies can do nothing for themselves, the sooner the alliance goes to pieces the better. But, after every short fit of despondency and ill-humor, he called up all the forces of his mind and put a strong curb on his temper. Weak, mean, false, selfish, as too many of the Confederates were, it was only by their help that he could accomplish what he had from his youth up considered as his mission. If they abandoned him, France would be dominant without a rival in Europe. Well as they deserved to be punished, he would not, to punish them, acquiesce in the subjugation of the whole civilized world. He set himself, therefore, to surmount some difficulties and to evade others. The Scandinavian powers he conciliated by waving, reluctantly indeed, and not without a hard internal struggle, some of his maritime rights. At Rome, his influence, though indirectly exercised, balanced that of the Pope himself. Lewis and James found that they had not a friend at the Vatican except Innocent, and Innocent, whose nature was gentle and irresolute, shrank from taking a course directly opposed to the sentiments of all who surrounded him. In private conversations with Jacobite agents, he declared himself devoted to the interests of the House of Stuart, but in his public acts he observed a strict neutrality. He sent 20,000 crowns to Saint-Germain, but he excused himself to the enemies of France by protesting this was not a subsidy for any political purpose, but merely an alms to be distributed among poor British Catholics. He permitted prayers for the good cause to be read in the English college at Rome, but he insisted that those prayers should be drawn up in general terms, and that no name should be mentioned. It was in vain that the ministers of the House of Stuart and Bourbon adjured him to take a more decided course. God knows, he exclaimed on one occasion, that I would gladly shed my blood to restore the King of England. But what can I do? If I stir, I am told that I am favoring the French and helping them set up a universal monarchy. I am not like the old popes. Kings will not listen to me as they listened to my predecessors. 
There is no religion now, nothing but wicked, worldly policy. The Prince of Orange is master. He governs us all. He has got such a hold on the Emperor and on the King of Spain that neither of them dares to displease him. God help us. He alone can help us. And as the old man spoke, he beat the table with his hand in an agony of impotent grief and indignation. End of section one. Recording by Bill McGovern.